Good morning. Well, thank you, Melissa, for reading that. I hope that you all took especially uh, good notice of that very last verse. After the service, I don't want to catch anyone speaking well of me. <laughs> I don't want to be counted as one of the false prophets. You know, when I read that verse, I couldn't help thinking of that story from 1 Kings, where uh, King uh, Ahab of Israel invites King Jehoshaphat of Judah to come and fight, help him fight some of their common enemies. After consulting 500 uh, of the prophets, uh, Jehoshaphat says to King Ahab, isn't there a man of the Lord, a prophet of the Lord of whom we can speak? And Jehoshaphat, uh, King Ahab says, well, there is still one, but I hate him. He never says anything good about me, only bad. So what makes a false prophet so uh, popular? They only tell you what you want to hear. I'll try not to do that this morning. But I get ahead of myself. Let's uh, cast our minds back to the beginning of the reading, where Jesus goes up the mountain and he spends time praying. Then um, in the morning, he comes back down and uh, he chooses his 12, 12 apostles. Now, these are the 12 who would be uh, the people he'd teach more deeply and would uh, walk more closely with him. They would be his chief witnesses and carry on his work after him. So uh, a couple of things strike me about this is that It reminds us that Jesus uh, is, uh, although he's God, he's still human. You would think being God that Jesus could just power on with his ministry 24-7 and uh, that he would know instantly who to choose as his uh, apostles. Now... Instead of that, we see that he just, uh, you know, he, he needs to spend time with the Lord. He goes off and seeks his, God, uh, the, his heavenly Father's will. So the second thing that strikes me is if Jesus needed to do that, so do we. We need to get away from the distractions and agendas and pressures in this life and seek God's will. His wisdom for the decisions we have to make. Now, after he's chosen these 12... It says that he descends with them to a level place, he heals many in the crowd, and he begins to teach. This teaching session is very similar to the Sermon of the Mount as written in Matthew's Gospel. Later in those two sermons, Jesus says many radical things, such as, love your enemy. But today we're just going to concentrate on that first uh, little bit that Melissa read you will notice that there are four sets of phrases beginning with blessed are, followed by four corresponding phrases beginning with woe to. So it appears to be poetical in its structure and in fact most of the Bibles we have use a special indentation to show that it is a quote or a poem. 
Now, it's not a, a quote from Old Testament scripture. My guess is that Jesus said something like this many times to his disciples, so it became like a scripture quote to them. And Luke has then written it down in the form of a poem so that it's easy to remember. All this makes me think it must be pretty important, even if the contents do seem a bit strange. At first glance, you would think that Jesus is saying that riches, joy and prestige in this life exclude you from being rewarded in heaven, or maybe even exclude you from heaven. But that's not consistent with some things that we know. For example, King David, who was very rich and powerful and well-liked, was also described as a man after God's own heart. Or take Abraham, who had many flocks and herds and servants. Yet he was held up by the New Testament writers as an example of a righteous man. I'm sure these are at least two rich men that we will see in heaven. And is it really more spiritually blessed, somehow better for us, to be poor and miserable? In Cambodia, Ali and I worked among some pretty poor people. Life was not too bad for many of them. But some of them, because of their circumstances, lived in grinding poverty. Some of them that we knew who had become interested in Jesus would have to make the choice between working on a Sunday so they could feed their children or coming to church. That sort of poverty is not spiritually enriching. Over the centuries since these words of Jesus were recorded, there's been several ways of interpreting them. Some have seen them as a new moral code to work towards. Maybe not everyone, but at least, at least for some people. For instance, some of the monastic orders were based on taking a vow of poverty and then trying to live out these ideals. Even some modern missionary movements see poverty as a virtue. I have one Cambodian friend who has really taken this idea to heart. He rides a really clapped out old motorcycle and he dresses in very shabby clothes. Being the leader of an organisation, this turns some heads. But I actually think it would work out a lot better for him if his wife was on board with these ideas too. Another view is that this sermon is putting forward a morality with such a high standard that it's impossible to attain. And Jesus is just reminding us that our own efforts at holiness are pathetic. These words, therefore, simply drive us back to reliance on God's mercy. They're not actually to be aspired to. I think you'll quickly see that there are pitfalls with both of these views. But I think looking at the text more closely, there's a few um, more useful interpretations we can bring. First thing is to notice that the uh, blessings and woes are in opposing pairs. So for example, blessed are the poor and later woe to the rich. This is consistent with the theme running right from the beginning of Luke's gospel. Jesus is announcing a great reversal. He is overturning assumptions that are made, made throughout the history of the Jews. For example, with this first blessing and woe set, he's contradicting the long-held view in, in amongst the Jews 
that riches were a sign of God's blessing and his approval, while poverty was the result of sin. Luke's gospel, more than any other, more than any of the other three, seems to have a social justice agenda. He seems to point out the corrupt nature of the Jewish society at that time and all the socio-economic imbalances. In this blessing and woes, it is the poor, miserable, oppressed and humble and disenfranchised that are held up to esteem. Jesus is often consorting with these sorts of people. The good news that Jesus brings is really good news for these people. Jesus has, in his healing ministry, starts to put some of these injustices right and he brings hope to the poor. Thinking along these lines, I think it can be supposed that when Jesus says woe to the rich, he's speaking to those self-righteous rich people who have made their money by oppressing others. And also then they go on to lord it over others. So it's not being rich itself, but it's how they got rich and now what they do with it. That's the issue. Luke is pointing out that when the kingdom fully arrives, these power imbalances and injustices will be put right. Now these two points indicate that blessings and woes are a general principle not meant for any one particular person. It's all about a change in the structure of society that the kingdom will usher in. Now, I've been thinking about this a bit, but I think there's still a more personal uh, way to look at these blessings and woes. Jesus has been healing people and bringing them about some of these improvements in their lives. Things are looking pretty good for those people who follow him. Some expectations are starting to build. Then he says, turning to his disciples. Now that doesn't mean the crowd in general, and it doesn't mean just the 12 apostles. It means all of those people who wanted to follow Jesus, follow his teachings. Turning to his disciples, he says, blessed are the poor, etc., etc." I think he's warning his disciples. I think he's saying to those people, hey, if you follow me, life is not gonna be a bed of roses you're probably not gonna, not, not gonna know where the next meal is coming from. You're gonna be poor for years and years. Spending the next dec decade or two of your lives being poor, being hungry, being rejected, excluded from respectable society, doesn't sound too hot. But hey, I will satisfy you. I will turn your weeping to joy. He then continues with this warning. If you start to think only about becoming wealthy, think about being well-fed, being merry and well-liked, you have taken your eye off the ball. You have made those things more important in your life than following the Son of Man. This is not a message just for those standing there on that hillside or on that level place eager to follow him 2,000 years ago, it's a message for us right now. If we choose to follow him and give him our all, 
it can be uncomfortable and go against conventional wisdom. It may cost us financially. It may make us unpopular with some people. But Jesus is promising it is, a, it is the better way, that there are rewards waiting for us. He also compels us to regularly ask ourselves, are the pleasures of this life and accumulating riches the things that take up most of our time and attention? Is it better to, if so, we had better watch out because ultimately these things won't benefit us. So it's not a matter of whether we're rich or poor that puts us in line for blessings or woes from Jesus. It's a matter of our priorities, what our focus is. At verse 23, Jesus says a very curious thing, that when people curse you for following the Son of Man, leap for joy, for your reward in heaven is great. I wonder, is the only reward waiting for us in heaven? When we follow Jesus, are we practicing some sort of delayed gratification, banking on that reward in heaven? Despite the phrasing in this passage, I'd say no. There are joys to be had along the way. In Cambodia, Ali and I worked among, uh, uh, we worked in a place where there happened to be several large churches in the villages. And every Christmas, these churches would put on a celebration, a special church service that they would invite a lot of people to and have a meal. Now, while in Cambodia, there's constitutional freedom of religion. There are limits on the size of gatherings. So every year, each of those churches would have to choose somebody to go off to the commune in their, in their district and fill in all the paperwork and get the commune chief to sign permission to do this. So they'd go off and get all this paperwork done and then they would sit down and wait for a signature. They would be, often be told, oh, you will have to come back tomorrow. He's too busy. Or just wait another hour or two, then he'll do it. But then eventually be told, come back again. This would go on for some time. And in the meantime, the clerk and some of the other officials that were there would, uh, would be saying to them, you're not being good Cambodians by being Christians. However, they persisted until they got that signature. Even though this had cost them a lot of time and precious fuel in their motorbikes getting to these places, they would always tell me these stories with a big smile on their face. I could see that despite the injustice of this, they enjoyed the challenge and they considered it an honour to do this for Jesus. I remember the time 20 years ago when I said something to my father that he didn't like. I told him that I was handing over the running of my farm to a share farmer and that I was going to take my family off to Cambodia for six or more years to do mission work. That didn't make me popular. He didn't speak to me for six months. 
he considered an affront to what was sensible, what he considered sensible, and and also uh, a rejecting of the lifestyle that he had chosen to live. My mother complained that I was taking her grandchildren away. Others complained that we were taking away nieces and nephews and valued friends. We had to leave many precious things in God's care. But you know, I don't think I ever thought about a reward in heaven. Maybe being young, heaven's a long, felt like a long way off, I don't know. But thinking it over now, I think I'd do the same things again. Thinking about all those people I got to know and love. I would do it, I would do it again. There were joys along the way. There were great experiences. Now, I want to turn back to that very last verse of the reading that was read out, where I started. Back then I jested about hoping that people wouldn't speak well of me. But there's a serious side. How much of our time and effort do we put into looking just right or acting just in the right way so that we're well liked by others? Now compare that to the effort we spend on doing things that please God. Keeping up with the Joneses has always been a trap. Comparing ourselves to others and then developing a sense of lack of satisfaction. But it seems to me that we've invented new ways of taking this even further. Social media taps into this very human need to be liked. How many of us have, um, have taken a photo and posted something we think is pretty amazing and then gone back and back to look at how many likes that we've got or how many nice comments people have made? I know I have, yeah. And then you realise, what a bloody waste of time and emotional effort. It's crazy. This human desire to be liked is so strong it spawned a whole industry. It's so powerful we now have people we call influencers and people spend their time following them and trying to be like them. Others work hard on their profile aiming for themselves to become influencers. I heard on the radio just this week that it's becoming increasingly common for young women and some men to use injectable cosmetics to make their lips fuller and perfect the shape of their face or make the corners of their smile lift up. A few years ago I also read that since the invention of the selfie and the trend of, of uh, posting edgy photographs that people have, um, the number of people falling off cliff tops and other high places has increased, you know, trying to get that perfect thing and going a bit too far. Now, trying to look good or take good photos is not a bad thing. But when it becomes our obsession, we start to make poor choices. Also, with all these uh, voices telling us different things, is it, is it not a wonder that 
So many people are now uh, are suffering from performance anxiety and depression. Most people are now carrying around in their pockets instant access to a whole world of people who, are, who you are led to believe look better, say cleverer things, do more interesting and adventurous things than we do. Or look, they're all having a better time than me. People are forgetting that we have this. It tells us, it's a bit bulkier, I know, but it tells us that God loves us, that he made us, he has plans for us. He made us for a purpose. He loves us so much that Jesus even died for us. None of these things are important. We just need to follow him. Let him be our one and only influencer. Do we really want to be like King Ahab, who wanted to listen to the 500 voices telling him to pursue the things his heart desired, rather than listening to the one voice telling us what God wants for us? So I hope as you go home, considering these words of Jesus, you will ponder a few things. What are the things in your life that are distracting you from following God's call? Maybe distracting you from pursuing relationships where you could be God's agent for good. Is Jesus your main influencer? Well, I've taken Luke's example and I've written you a poem, which I hope will help you to remember today's lesson. It goes like this. It does not matter if you are rich or poor, having lots of fun, or you're a bit of a bore. What matters is to become more like him. He died to save us, our hearts to win. Thank you.